Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Dan Epps. And I'm Will Bode. So, Will, I think this might be kind of a, a heavy episode because uh, the court did some stuff since we last uh, recorded, but I think that might be all the more reason to kind of lighten the mood with some some banter before we jump in. Uh, although we did get a voicemail. Uh, I'm not going to play this one. We got a voicemail on our voicemail line. So far, all of our voicemails on the voicemail line have been kind of critical. That's why we haven't really been playing them. That said, you know, why do you guys always start talking about why, uh, you know, why you haven't recorded? We get it. Just go right into the the law stuff. It's like, come on, man. That You've got a fast forward button for a reason. If you don't like the banter, skip it. But if you just want like robotic coverage, you know, where we don't even try to be funny, even if we fail. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff you can listen to and read. Uh, yeah, I mean, we don't even like read ads at the start of our podcast. So I'm so used to many of my other podcasts. I have to fast forward through, you know, four and a half minutes of like crypto or health, uh, whatever. I, I keep saying we should, I would gladly, I would gladly sell out to, to crypto or whatever. Crypto is a total scam, but if they want to pay me in in actual dollars, not in fake crypto dollars, I'll, I'll say whatever you want, but you've got principles. Uh, you don't want to do that. That's okay. But we don't, I don't think we have to make an excuse about a delay because we we are back at it uh, pretty quickly. And as a show of how much I love the fans, uh, I am recording this from a vehicle. It's a stationary vehicle outside uh, my in-law's house. Uh, it is past nine o'clock. Uh, this is the only audio environment that is uh, sonically acceptable here, and that's just how much uh, how much I love love the listeners. Where are you recording from, Will? Uh, I'm still recording from home, uh, having escaped from my bedtime duties slightly earlier than usual. Uh, I will say, in general, we do have this great tactic of scheduling some, you know, family travel uh, around the time the Supreme Court is releasing its most important opinions. I think last summer we tried the tactic of just not recording while we were gone and. People got really mad at us, so we've been sufficiently moved by that to try yeah. to actually give you some content. Yeah, there's not really a great solution. I guess we could just like plan vacations at a more sensible time, but that doesn't really seem feasible uh, either. So I think that we're just going to have to make do. Okay, any other any other banter related items for us to discuss? <laughs> uh, that's good for now. Anything on the banter, the banter queue? Speaking of voicemails, uh, we did also get a uh, nice voicemail. This didn't come through on the the official divided argument uh, voicemail line, but actually, I got this on my uh, WashU uh, voicemail line. So let's go ahead and play this one now. Hi, Professor Apple. My name is Brant Martin. I'm a lawyer at Texas, and I actually argued uh, this Lake Del Sewer case in front of the court. I know you don't need compliments from me, but I was going to call you and Professor Vaughn and just let you know that y'all were, of all of the coverage that I've read in the last few days, you guys were the most accurate in terms of the legal issues involved, including the ambiguities of what was left to be decided later. And so I just wanted to compliment you. And I, I really enjoy your podcast, and I'm going to leave Professor Vaughn the same message. 
Hope you're having a great day. So there you go. You have uh, one listener, very informed uh, listener who uh, has some authority there, who says we got, you know, our discussion of one case right. How about that? Yeah, he actually he called my office too, and uh, I happened to actually pick up, which sort of shocked him because he was calling rather later at night than he expected me to be in my office. So that's great. Uh, I think you know when were how late were you in your office? I was only like, I don't know. It's after it was after six p.m. It was after six p.m. <laughs> okay, yeah, that is quite late for a law professor to be in the office. Uh, it's late for a law professor with kids. Before I had kids, I regularly would stay in the office until like after seven p.m. to avoid. Uh, lecture drive traffic but now that doesn't really fly yeah although you know we have a lot of like actual lawyers uh who are listening many of whom i think like go back to the office at 7 p.m after like a quick dinner break so yeah uh 7 p.m is 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 not that late um i usually work from my Uh, son's uh, bedroom actually well but that's uh, another story you do that's where you are right now no that's just usually where i do my post-dinner work Oh, okay. It's not a good recording um, environment. Don't you have your, prep, you, try to, you have your own office, though. Yeah, but... Don't, I, I can see you've got a bunch of bookshelves behind you and then the video. Yeah, yeah, but while he's still awake, then, you know... Anyway. I guess we have to actually do do the stuff. This is a heavier one. Um, court, uh, you know, decided some really big, uh, big things. Um, number one... And I don't know if this is the one we're going to talk about first, but certainly one that we should mention first is the court did decide Dobbs. The uh, majority opinion that was leaked by Justice Alito uh, overturning Roe versus Wade did, you know, with some, you know, relatively minor changes become the law of the land. It got it got five votes. Roe versus Wade uh, is overruled. We have uh, some concurring opinions. We have a concurrence in the judgment by Chief Justice Roberts, and we have uh, a dissent jointly signed by the three liberal justices. Going to be a lot to say about that. We should also talk about Bruin. Do you have the full full caption of that name uh, case in front of you? Uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, or NYSERPA. Okay. Yes, this is a very significant Second Amendment case uh, in which the Supreme Court said that discretionary licensing regimes for um, carrying uh, firearms, for licenses to carry firearms, violate uh, the Second Amendment. And then, you know, we may uh, get to a, I'd say, less heavy, um, you know, less blockbuster case uh, called Vega. Is it Vega? You you say it. I assume it's Vega. Vega versus Tico. Okay. Yeah. Which is about Miranda and a little bit more in our kind of like nerdy, technical, metaphysical, legal question kind of wheelhouse than the other stuff, which is more like, you know, get your blood boiling, you know, hot button, you know, you know, social issues, con law. But, you know, we're going to we're going to talk about them. So I don't know. What do you want to talk about first and what should we talk about first? Well, I got to say, it's always dangerous when you list at the beginning of the episode what cases we're going to talk about, because that's probably cursing us not to get through them all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm look, I'm just I'm in this car for as long as it takes. So, (laughs) all right. You know, well, let's just talk about Dobbs first. Okay. it happened. I assume nobody needs us to recap the opinion if you're listening to this podcast by the time it comes out and haven't read or like at least the syllabus in Dobbs. You know, you have a very strange way of getting your Supreme Court news. But 
Uh, yeah, this is this is some days after the fact. This is you know we're this will hopefully episode is going to drop on Monday. Opinion came out on Friday. Yeah, but I guess start with you know were you surprised? No, I mean it's hard uh, you know given that we had a preview of the majority, uh, and we had a you know another leak telling us that that you know there were five five votes for that that the position laid out in the majority opinion over a rolling row and that as of, you know, kind of a, a week before the leak or something, um, you know, according to this other leak that things, uh, things hadn't really changed. I'm not, I'm not tremendously surprised. Not really at all. Were you, I mean, did you think that things were going to change? I, I, cause I kind of felt like once the, you know, it, it's just hard to imagine. And, and maybe this actually supports the kind of, conservatively kind of like counter story that it was just hard to imagine that once that opinion had had leaked that there would be like that there would be dramatic changes to it unless something kind of unusual happened inside the court uh, yeah no that, that that's just right i think i didn't the majority opinion didn't change much you know there have been various people running red lines to see uh what's different and i think basically the opinion adds some responses to the concurrences and dissents and corrects a few typos and paragraph or two on a rational basis and that's about it which is i guess you know about what i what i would have expected what we didn't have before though were the other opinions you know the dissents the concurrences and that I mean, you know maybe we had some guess of what some, what some of those would say but but maybe not entirely yeah so let's maybe uh take a look at those maybe maybe the logical place to to start this is not exactly in order in which things are laid out was is to kind of talk about the uh, the chief justice roberts uh, concurrence in the judgment yeah where he he's the conservative justice who does not join the majority does not agree that it's appropriate to overrule roe and uh, planned parenthood versus casey in this case uh and instead would basically i'd say partially overrule those cases but would at least in his own understanding retain kind of part uh, of Roe, the idea that there is some right to choose whether to terminate a pregnancy, but that there can be stricter time limits on the exercise of that right than were previously thought uh, constitutionally permissible. Right. So it's sort of, I mean, in some ways you could see it as doing to Casey and Roe what what Casey did to Roe, you know, retaining the the core holding that there's a, a right to an abortion, but not necessarily keeping the framework for what counts as a violation of that right or what the what the scope of that right is but yeah it's still i mean i you know there's also some some sort of question already in kind of branding and whether to see this how much to see this as yeah. like the majority but on different grounds and how much to see this as as totally different i noticed the yeah the joint dissent kind of goes out of their way to try to try to put it put distance between him and the majority so they can call this a five to yeah. four decision yeah and so and, and so you know roe itself laid out a trimester framework that basically said, you know, that there was a very important line at viability, right? Uh, after viability, the state can do a lot more to uh, restrict abortion, but before 
viability, there's a much greater constitutional protection for women for a woman and her right to choose. And Roberts says that line never made any sense. And instead, uh, the standard should be, you know, when do you have a, a reasonable opportunity to choose? As long as you have a constitutional right that goes as far as a reasonable opportunity to choose to end your pregnancy, but not not further, which would have been sufficient to uphold the Mississippi law, which has a ban at 15 weeks, but would not necessarily require overruling all those other cases. Um, one question, I was talking about this with a friend of mine, and we had different views on this question, about whether Roberts actually did want to, do, do, would have wanted to overturn Roe versus Casey, but he just wanted to do it kind of like a couple steps down the road uh, versus he just didn't ever want to actually do it. He just wanted to kind of pair them back, but still always say, well, we haven't like, you know, gotten rid of those cases entirely. Which one do you think is correct? I think the truth is that he wanted to leave that undecided. I guess I, I take it at face of that, like the thing about these incremental steps is for them to be in good faith. And I think this one is there's at least some possibility that you don't know what the next step is. That's one of the reasons you take incremental steps. So I guess. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's, that's a cop out though. No, I mean, I guess if you're asking, Even if you're not hundred percent certain, like, but like, what do you really think? Like if, if you really think like, you know, if this was had shaped up this way and then we have another case three years later, you know, that, that tries to move the line a little bit further that really kind of um, goes beyond the reasonable opportunity the standard that he lays out where he doesn't like totally endorse he just says like look that's where if we're gonna you know move it we should move it to there right you know what do you think what he would have done no i i i really don't think it's a cop-out but i guess you know because I, I also think i'll just let me fight the hypo one more time you know some of the star decisive factors actually depend on the facts so like we would need to know the workability like we would have to see the workability of the new chief justice's regime. And if it turned out to be really unworkable because <sighs> nobody knew, you know, it's different that if it turned out that actually you kind of work with this, that said, I'll just, so now I'll give you the answer. If you see this, I mean, if we see this as like in the genre of Richard Ray style, one last chances that, the, that he's documented from the Roberts mm-hmm. court, you know, times the court kind of like takes the incremental step before taking the ultimate step. I, I think in every case we know of, he's always been willing to take the last step. You know, he doesn't strike down the Voting Rights Act in Northwest Austin, Northwest Austin, that he does in Shelby County. You know, there's the uh, the incremental steps towards Janus, and then the end he gets there, the incremental steps that lead to Citizens United. But like, we can only figure out whether the first thing is an incremental step by figuring out what the second step was, right? So to figuring out, we have to figure out, was this the incremental step or was just, right. was this the end of the road? Well, and that's, right? So like, yeah. I agree that that framework, Richard's framework is really useful and it describes a lot of the things Roberts and the Roberts court have done, but it's still, you know, it, th- that framing presupposes how we should categorize, characterize what he was trying to do here. Well, right. But I can't think of a time when there was a case where we thought the court might overrule precedent X. They don't overrule it, but they take a sort of step in that direction. And then they later get a yeah. case where they reaff- where he votes to reaffirm precedent X. That would be the, you know. If you saw. Yes. Yeah. But here, I mean, his is a situation where everybody else wants to do it. He doesn't want to do it. I don't know. Yeah. And so he doesn't get a majority. That's kind of a compromise. He tries to kind of right. tries to make a compromise, I guess, that doesn't get. Yeah. Doesn't get support. I don't know. My my, my guess uh, in that vote uh, in that in that situation was that like. He probably wasn't going to want to actually overrule, even though he might want to on the merits that. 
He's such an institutionalist. He does seem to believe a little bit more in story decisis than a lot of the others that I'm not sure he would have actually pulled the trigger, you know, and just knowing, you know, what it's going to mean for, you know, the political temperature around the court, which is already, you know, white hot. That's just my supposition. But, you know, I guess we'll never know. Two other things I want to say about this opinion. If that's So one thing I think is interesting is just that he decided to publish it. Because if you saw this as a gambit, like you saw this as he was trying to broker a compromise or trying to find an intermediate position, you know, once it fails, it's not, if you're just being political, it's not obvious that you get any mileage out of, out of publishing it once it's clear you've, you know, once it just proves you're, that you're failing to be able to, to broker a compromise. You have to, you have to do something at that point. You have to either join somebody else's opinion right. or write a new opinion. Yeah, but that's, that's just so, it. You could, you could skip to the next step. So if, if we, if we think that he knows that at the end of this intermediate step, in the end, he'd vote to affirm it, he could have, you know, just gone along and said, okay, right. Or vice versa. If, if at the end of the day, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, he's like, yes, I would overrule row. I'd prefer to get there slower rather than fast. He could join. You know, yeah, and say it's just interesting that, yeah. that he doesn't do that. Well, but there's also you know you you're maintaining a certain amount of credibility within among your colleagues, which is that if you throw something out there and saying I wrote this, I think this is the correct answer, and then nobody bites on it, you're like, okay, never mind. Um, yeah, no, I agree. It, it kind of it, yeah, it kind of hurts your credibility. But that might suggest um, he cares more what his colleagues think yeah. about him than he cares about what we think about him, which I think would be good. Yeah. Um, the other, I just, there's one, he has one paragraph, uh, really, you think it's more, you think it's better for justices to like be liked by their colleagues than the American people? Yeah. <laughs> Don't you? Uh, uh, no, I think that like they should, it's more important that they should be doing like jobs that, you know, like the American people can respect rather than like their buddies, like their coworkers. I, I mean, the <laughs> like, most important thing is they should do a good job. But if they're to the degree they're kind of like getting a gut check on they're doing a good job, I think choosing from other people who are a sort of bipartisan group of justices in the United States are like a way better guide than you know than than public opinion than like majoritarian public opinion. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that's right at all. I think I want the court to be somewhat hemmed in by public opinion, which it has been historically. Uh, maybe it is less so. T- too much today. Too much. I think. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure that that's I'm not sure that that's right. I think that like there's a limit to what you know we should ask and we should expect judges uh, to be doing that go beyond uh, public opinion. And um, there's dangers when they get too far away from where the public is. And you know I think we might be seeing that happen now and in the future uh, yeah. as the court is going to this court this court is you know starting to really you know, flex its muscles in, in dramatically uh, changing the law, which, you know, the majority is, has done here. I mean, we should pause for a second and just talk about the implications. Like as of like today, I guess, I- abortion is now illegal in like half the country. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, it's, it's, I think some people have done maps, but there's a lot of states that have either pre-existing laws that were on the books before Roe and then never got you know, never went away, right? Yeah. And now they're those laws are enforceable again. And then there's other states that have passed trigger laws that go into effect when Rose overturned. Is it obvious to you that the relevant day is like Friday, yesterday, rather than waiting until the Supreme Court's mandate issues? I was wondering that. I was going through that thought process. Um, but then I sort of thought like, well, what does the mandate have to do with anything when 
you're talking about like other cases. Obviously, like the mandate is what matters for like the actual case at hand when it gets like sent down and has to be like followed by lower courts. But like once the Supreme Court has issued an opinion, like stating a definitive interpretation of the Constitution, why is that not like the law of the land? You know, right. I mean, with respect to other cases. Right. Well, I mean, this is part of the problem is it's a little confusing why we treat Supreme Court opinions as the law of the land at all. But, it, you know, the reason the mandate issues when it does is that there's a period of time where the court at least purports to invite petitions for rehearing in case they miss something. Yeah. And so you could you could imagine, I mean, obviously, it's not going to happen in this case. But you could imagine in the rare cases where you do successfully file a petition for a hearing and then the court grants it, it'll be a little weird to say you know yeah for that two-week period before the court even officially signed off on it it had become yeah maybe so flickered out but but i mean something we'll circle back to i think in just a minute is there is this question about you know is there some danger of kind of retroactive liability for for situations where these laws were on the books you know for for a lengthy period of time while while was still good law and all of a sudden now turns out Roe is no longer good law do people that kind of acted in reliance on Roe but did things that violated, you know, the the written positive law in those states, are they now like retroactively like criminals? Right. right? And so that's that brings us that's one problem that, you know, but 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 I mean, just like a narrower version of that is what if someone goes and, you know, an abortion doctor goes and facilitates an abortion tomorrow before the mandate comes down? I certainly, as a lawyer, would certainly, you know, I would not advise uh, someone to do that, regardless of what the technical answer is about the mandate. I would say, like, don't do that. That's exposing yourself to really, really uh, significant threat of criminal liability in such a state. Like once the court has told us that this is not yeah. the law anymore. So so I think that's right. I was, this sort of brings <laughs> us to Justice Kavanaugh's occurrence, which maybe we should talk about next. Yeah. Uh, so Justice Kavanaugh, I gotten a little trouble for suggesting on Twitter on Friday that the maybe one of the most important paragraphs people should read is a paragraph in Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence where he decides to just opine on two of the follow-on constitutional <laughs> questions. Uh, in both, in both, this is, I think, uh, well, we, we can talk about this good bad in a sec. So it's, this is interesting because these are two questions that like many people are wondering about. From this opinion, everybody's sort of assuming Justice Kavanaugh is the likely fifth vote on these kinds of questions. So his opinion what, what he will do is extremely important to anybody just trying to, to take the kind of legal realist approach to these questions. And are these questions like well presented in this case? No. Not at all. Not at all. Right. They're just n- not presented even a, a right. little bit. A- a- and then he, he says in this paragraph, which I'll, that these are not especially difficult as a constitutional matter, which is why he feels <laughs> confident to opine on them. What's funny yeah. is that in, in both cases, his answer, while totally sensible as a sort of practical point of view, is not at all obviously the the normal interpretation of the current precedent, which is, of course, exactly yeah. why he wants to say it. So it, so he says, uh, for example, may a state bar a resident of that state from traveling to another state to obtain an abortion? In my view, the answer is no, based on the constitutional right to interstate travel. No citation to a no, no, no. Yeah, no case cite at yeah. all. I mean, there are cases you could cite. There are clauses you could cite, but no cite. And then, then the question we just asked, may a state retroactively impose liability or punishment for an abortion that occurred before today's decision takes effect? In my view, the answer is no, based on the due process clause or the ex post facto clause. Here, at least cites Bowie versus City of Columbia, which is kind of about this. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, not really. I mean, Bowie is about a case where the Supreme Court says it's a violation of due process um, to, you know, 
retroactively reinterpret a criminal statute in a way that's like totally indefensible based on what came before. Right. Right. Which is not exactly the same thing as saying it violates due process to impose liability on someone, you know, when a court right. changes, uh, reinterprets precedent. Indeed, under existing precedent, they're like exactly the opposite thing. Like in Bowie, it's about the state Supreme Court using its common law power to effectively change the law. And the point is that if it changes the law, it can't change it retroactively. And in constitutional cases, the fiction that goes back to Marbury versus Madison of what the court is doing is it's telling us what the law always required, even if you know something like a decision or a statute previously said something different. Now, this is exactly the thing. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh did this exact same move in a plurality opinion a couple of years ago called uh, Barr versus the American Association of Political Consultants. Yeah. But Bowie is not common law, right? It was interpreting a statute. Uh, yes, but I, I think the idea is that the state, the state Supreme Court is using its ability. The, the reason we yeah. defer to state Supreme Court's interpretations of the statute, even if it's not what the Supreme Court thinks it would be, is because as a common law court, the state Supreme Court has some sort of authority to, you know, to make law with respect to the statute as a matter of state law. I mean, this goes back to like Erie and, you know, I, and I thought I thought we just deferred because they were the final expositors of state law and they could say whatever the statute says, this is what we say it says. Well, I mean, right? this is why, why are they the final expositors of state law? It's, I think it, you know, there's nothing that says, yeah, that it's in part because of their different judicial role, I think, but. Maybe that doesn't quite make sense to me, but we don't have to talk about yeah. that. So just to flag back, to, circle back to the one question you're we asking, I note that just as Kavanaugh's concurrence says before today's decision takes effect, question mark. So if I had a client who really, yeah. really, really wanted to avail themselves, you know, of uh, the Roe versus Wade right in the next 14 days, I think I could write them an opinion letter that says that you have until the decision takes effect under the Supreme Court rules. That's when the mandate issues. You would certainly be rolling the dice, but I think you'd probably yeah. be okay. Yeah, I mean that opinion letter. You couldn't you couldn't rely on that as a defense to later criminal prosecution. Yes, but uh, but he does seem to say this is how I will answer uh, those questions, which is I think pretty extraordinary. You really don't you don't see that very much where someone says, "Look, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take these things off the table." Right. But that's good, isn't it? Isn't it good? I mean, it's good for whom? The country. I don't know. I mean, is it? it would it? Is it? Would it, like? It depends on the question depends on the answer i guess the, i think in general like, this paragraph in general don't we I mean like don't we um is this paragraph good i think it's going to give people a certain certain bit of comfort who are worried about these issues i don't know if i would endorse the proposition that it is good for supreme court justices just to answer a bunch of disputed constitutional questions in separate opinions when those questions are not at all presented by the case at hand right but in this right? in this case where they are Questions that everybody knows are like literalized in the future, where he apparently does he, these these two questions he thinks are easy, and the alternative is just to keep his mouth shut and potentially give us like several years of you know extremely traumatic litigation and dickering about both these things. Yeah, like, isn't that at least? Yeah. Although, yeah. by the way, are we sure Roberts would agree with that like interstate travel stuff? I'm not sure. It's uh, not obviously right. Uh, Maybe it's right. Uh, yeah it'd be good if it were right so yeah I, i'm not sure either one is right i think the travel one is easier to defend because there is precedent going back to like the 1860s suggesting that that interstate travel is a privilege or immunity of citizenship and i think it's pretty easy to imagine the chief and and kavanaugh at least getting there 
but you know, it's not so obvious that it was obvious to me before he said so. Again, that's the irony of, of yeah. him saying it's easy. Yeah. It's just, it's not a posture where he's the fifth vote and you've got four justices in dissent who we are confident would right. side with him. Not, yeah, not completely. Again, I, I think people are pretty confident, but, uh, and these are both quite, you know, do have a lot of ambiguities, right? So he says the state can't bar you from traveling to another state to obtain an abortion. Now, can the state punish you upon your return? Citing cases like Skiriotis versus Florida that say the state has the ability to punish its citizens for criminal acts committed outside the jurisdiction when they return. He doesn't tell us that. You know, who has jurisdiction over multi-jurisdictional questions? He doesn't tell us that. Like these these do also maybe give people false clarity if you aren't thinking very many moves ahead. Yeah, although it's hard for me to distinguish a law that says you can't travel to do this versus a law that says if you did travel to do this you've committed a crime. Well, you might, right? isn't that kind of the same the idea thing? might be you travel and then you stay like the way, I mean, the way we did this, we had a lot of cases about this with slavery. And the idea was at least for some of these questions, you could travel to another jurisdiction and claim your freedom, but you know, you shouldn't go back. If, if that's really what he's meaning to suggest that it's such something that narrow, I think that would be quite misleading if you were to say in a later case, Oh yeah, I said that, but I, I didn't mean that you could then return to your home. I think that would be absurd if that's if that's if that if he was trying to draw that distinction here, that would be like extremely misleading to people. I don't think that's what he's saying. I, I don't think I so either. Don't think that's what he wants us to think he's saying. Yeah, I, I don't think he means to draw that distinction, but I don't know. Yeah, he also says that you know basically doesn't totally answer this question, but just says overruling Roe does not mean the overruling of other cases like Griswold, which said uh, states can't ban uh, contraceptives, uh, Loving, which said, you know, the Constitution prohibits bans on interracial marriage, foul marriage. And he doesn't 100% say like those decisions are right, but he does say that, you know, this case does not threaten or cast doubt on those precedents. Uh, is what the majority says too, right? Yes. Although, you know, it, it sounds like Justice Kavanaugh is like a tiny bit more serious about that than the majority. Uh, yeah. Okay. Could be. I mean, and then we have Justice Kavanaugh, or sorry, Justice Thomas, who also joins the majority, who <laughs> maybe says the opposite. Yes. Just to, to linger on, on Kavanaugh for one second. We're going to see another opinion like this a little bit later in the episode, but like he has, the, he writes these opinions where he's just like, he kind of just like really wants to be liked. He's just like, look, I know I'm doing this thing that a lot of you are going to hate, but like, let me try to put a nice spin on it and say, it's like maybe not quite as bad as you think. And there's things that are good about it, but it just, it just has this kind of like, like smarmy feel to it. It's like, Oh, Please don't hate me for this. Okay. I'm going to say the most controversial thing I'm going to say on this episode. I don't think that Justice Kavanaugh cares what we think about him. And I don't think he's writing these things to be liked. I think he's responding to exactly the problem we've been talking about. I think he wants people to respect the court. I think he's trying maybe unsuccessfully. I don't like, I don't think it's personal. Like he's trying unsuccessfully to like sell the court's opinion as legitimate in kind of layman's terms. And it's probably a fool's errand because people don't read Supreme Court opinions. They read other sources that, you know, frame the court's opinions for their own good. But I think he's I think he's like not speaking. It's not it's not about him. I think this is just like he's trying to get people to see that. Yeah, although that's not that's not quite right, because he is saying some things that the majority doesn't say. 
he's resolving some issues the majority doesn't resolve, right? About these follow-on follow on issues. He's trying to give people confidence about what he thinks, even if it's not what the majority thinks. Yeah. Right? I, I No, I think that part's different. But the part I assume you're referring to of like, the Constitution is not pro-life, the Constitution is not pro-choice, this is the neutral position, you know, I think is not, the, the, that part, uh, I think is not about like, I am a neutral judge, and therefore everybody should like Yes, me. although it just immediately, uh, immediately is followed by, you know, the part of the opinion where he's like, look, I know I said all that stuff, but like, here's why this maybe isn't quite as bad as you think it is, because I'm going to just take certain issues off the table. That's the part that kind of makes it feel to me like he's like, you know, come on, guys, don't don't totally hate me. I don't know. My sense of him has always been that he cares a tiny bit more with the kind of larger legal and political community thinks of him than maybe some of them. Like, I don't think that I don't think Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas care even a little bit. Yeah. I, I, you know, look, look, maybe, although, you know, if he really cared what the legal community thought of him, you know, he could have joined the chief's concurrence. Yeah. I mean, it's complicated. I mean, I think that, you know, people, these justices have different audiences and, right. you know, you can't satisfy every constituency, which is kind of the problem. But I think that right. that's why I sort of see uh, him as like doing the thing he ultimately wants to do, but then like trying to like, like come on guys you still like me right i just think which is just not not gonna succeed for him right i just said that's obviously not gonna succeed and i think he's not dumb enough to think that would succeed and i think there's this (laughs) tendency that we all fall into to like read in terms of reading like the tone and emotion behind opinions to read it sort of in light of our pre-existing character sketches of the justices so i don't know you know we saw lots of people described as alito's majority opinion as you know snide and angry and hateful and all these other like adjectives we're used to applying the justice alito um i remain unconvinced that anybody would have applied those adjectives to the opinion if they didn't know who the author was and i worry people doing the same thing justice kavanaugh that we decided that he was like smarmy and careerist and you know whatever uh and now everything he says people are going to read as if that's what was going on even if actually he's doing it doesn't, doesn't mean doesn't mean we're wrong though no it doesn't mean it's wrong and it doesn't mean it's right it's just i i'm i say i understand nobody's going to believe me but that's what i think is going on in this opinion Okay, well, we'll have to let that one let that one go. Justice Thomas goes uh, in a different direction and um, does not uh, want to reassure people that uh, those other cases, um, which rest on uh, in in whole or in part on the doctrine of substantive due process, the idea that the due process clause of uh, the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments uh, include certain kinds of substantive liberties, uh, which until uh, Friday had been interpreted to include the right to uh, choose an abortion. He, he sort of suggests that you know we should actually rethink, rethink all of those cases, right? We could, we should rethink uh, Obergefell and Griswold and Lawrence versus Texas, which says you know uh, over, which said that uh, state sodomy bans are unconstitutional. And this is not what the majority says uh, is going to happen necessarily. And it's not what Justice Kavanaugh says is going to happen necessarily. But Justice Thomas does uh, does want to do that. Yeah. And I think that these may actually not, I mean, in, in a way, they're they're not quite conflicting because they're saying different. the majority says, you know, nothing in this opinion cast doubt on those cases. And I guess Justice Thomas might say, well, fine, it's true. Nothing in this opinion cast doubt on those cases. That said, I would cast doubt on those cases. But but it's not that this opinion makes them any, you know, just as Thomas's mind, th- this opinion does not make those cases any more wrong. They were wrong before. And he just 
continues to be willing to push it further and everybody else yeah. says well you know we're willing to yeah. do this one but not the others yeah but i think his opinion does not really change our priors at all i mean we we always knew he thought all those cases were wrong and we all already knew that he really doesn't care much about story decisis and so i don't Right. I don't think we gain much new information about what the court is likely to do based on that concurrence. Right. The, uh, the one, which is, you know, nobody joins. Right. Yeah. Nobody joins. Uh, and the one thing I think we maybe we maybe my priors moved a little bit on is uh, I think you mentioned this, that in Justice Kavanaugh's list, Loving versus Virginia was in the list of safe precedents. And on Justice Thomas's list, Loving versus Virginia is not on the list of imperiled substantive due process precedents. Yeah. Loving is yeah. both an equal protection and a substantive due process case. And my guess is that Justice Thomas has read enough of the literature on Loving to think that there is an originalist case for Loving, which is my view as well. So I think I've moved my prior slightly to convenient, slightly to thinking uh, he probably, you know, he probably genuinely thinks Loving was rightly decided. Um, and there's a good article about this by David Upham that I suspect that he's read. That's quite possible. Okay, so um, you know we have those those lingering questions. What is the larger jurisprudential significance of this case what does it mean for other uh other precedents and then we have those uh follow-on legal issues that justice kavanaugh uh purports to uh resolve you know we haven't really talked about the majority opinion that much but probably the best way to do so uh, i think is is really through the lens of the joint dissent which, which kind of really goes after the majority thought you know uh, was was pretty well done and you know, it's a long descent, but I, I, I thought it did not fall into the trap of feeling like it has to kind of like go line by line on like every, literally every single thing the majority says and like, you know, point out why like, oh, you're misreading this one case from 1802, you know, and, and actually the the comma was in a different place or something like I, I thought it actually was able to stay at a slightly higher level, you know, really hit the majority uh, at its uh, weakest point, but but not kind of lose the forest uh, for for the trees. You know, wh- what did you think? And putting aside the the merits, like, you know, what did you what was your reaction to the dissent? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about that. I think it was a good example of a uh, a dissent that's kind of that kind of stands on its own. Like it's not, you know. They could have gone into the fight about, you know, is Justice Alito right about the state of, you know, quickening and common law prohibitions on abortion or is Aaron Tang right? And like, it's probably smart not to get in there. It did. Two two things I was struck by by, by it is, I guess, one is, you know, this would have been the opportunity to kind of commit either to the stare decisis path or to the merits path to defending Mm -hmm. Rowan Casey. And I feel like there's always, that's always been a sort of awkwardness of the this posture, and it'll be even more awkward now that Star Decisis doesn't support it. Is you know, you could just lean in, like Casey just sort of says, "Look, we're, it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong, or you know, the whole point is that we shouldn't be asking that question again." Or you know, given the sort of the the lack of blood in that kind of attack, you could just say, "Look, you know, I will actually give you the affirmative. I'll write you the opinion that that what reverses Wade should have said." And I found the opinion was still kind of like moving in between those two a little more than than worked for me, but I'm not the target audience. The other thing I was the most struck by is how anti-originalist it was, um, like more so than a lot of opinions, even separate opinions we've seen from the Supreme Court in a while. Yeah, and it, it did a little bit more work to try to lay out an approach to constitutional interpretation that as a real kind of alternative to to you know 
more rigid originalism. And this is, I mean, this is why we kind of have to circle back to uh, the majority because um, the majority does have a fairly lengthy discussion of of history and what was the state of the law at common law. I thought this was actually quite deft. I found the majority's discussion of the history, even when I just read the original draft before I read the dissent, I found it pretty unpersuasive because you can just sort of tell that the majority is there was this common law distinction between, you know, quickening before and after quickening, like when the fetus's movements could be felt as quickening. And like, it seems pretty clear there's a lot of stuff that says like it became a crime at quickening and just reading the majority on its own it's kind of like going through all these hoops and like well there's this like weird proto felony murder rule so actually the line wasn't there and it just it like the dissent is just like yeah that's that wasn't the rule the rule and they just like cite blackstone they're like the rule was before quickening it wasn't a crime End of, end of story, right? Like, and I, I felt like that was actually much more effective than spending 10 pages, like going through 20 different treatises and, and just kind of revealing how, you know, maybe the weakness uh, in that argument, maybe you would have wanted to see a lot more uh, engagement with the history. Yeah. Is that, w- w- I mean, I guess I, I didn't find, I mean, I didn't find the majority as weak on that point and therefore didn't find the dissent as persuasive on that point but that doesn't mean that still tactically this that might have been the done the right thing and I, this is that sort of in a way I, I have the same taste in majority opinions maybe as you do in dissents justice alito is a is a really thorough author right so he wants to go into all the details whether it's the factual record or the you know each of these cases and to like to really make the case for everything he thinks is right uh and my own view is that it's better if if those if those aren't the outcome determinative details. It's better for the opinion not to dwell on them. I take it out of the majority's view and methodology. Like ultimately, nothing hinges on most of the little questions, because ultimately, the case for Roe needs to show a, such a deeply rooted consensus in favor of a right to abortion that you know we, we can use it to preempt democratic decisions today, and that even on kind yeah. of the even taking Roe's history on its own terms, like Roe doesn't actually show enough to do that. Um, yeah. So, you know, so in a way, I, I think that would be, I mean, that's a better argument for, for the majority rather than like really straining hard to show, uh, contrary to what like most people seem to understand the common law is saying, really you know, stretching to kind of claim that abortion was always illegal, you know, from conception, which just does not seem to have been the common law rule. Uh, and I thought the you know majority's attempts to try to frame it that way were were really just not not persuasive. But I think that you know focusing on the other argument, you know, that's at least strikes me as more intellectually honest way to do it. Uh, yeah. I'm, what was wrong with the proto felony murder rule argument? Nothing was particularly wrong with it as such. It just seemed like a very thin read uh, on which to uh, contradict what you know had previously been understood. Uh, and that there seems to be a lot of support to understand that uh, this was an important line right. that the common law drew Although, between when it was a crime and when it wasn't. And then they say, well, there's this other distinction between, you know, these cases where, and just to listeners know what we're talking about, where if a, if, you know, a physician is trying to effectuate an abortion, but then kills the woman, that that's, that's murder. And then this is the basis on which the, Majority says, "Well, actually, look. That means that uh, abortion was always 
criminal, uh, regardless of whether uh, quickening uh, had occurred. And that just that didn't seem that didn't seem to follow uh, at all. It could be the case that there's all sorts of things that that situations where someone can do something that is itself legal, but then if it has a really bad result, maybe we don't give them the benefit of the doubt and do hold them uh, criminally responsible. Um, maybe we think it's more dangerous. I mean, there's just, you know, it just, it, it didn't, it didn't carry uh, the amount of weight I thought that the uh, majority uh, wanted it to. So I think one thing you said that's helpful is that this is another example that we're going to, it might depend a lot on your starting point. So I do think since Roe, a lot of people have sort of repeated that understanding of the common law history. My, my sense was that, you know, before Roe, there was not, a, that was not as much the historical consensus. There were these kind of edgy articles by um, one scholar that Roe kind of relies on. So this is maybe a good example of like Roe's own understandings of the history and, and so on. Maybe if, you know, have creep have come deeply rooted in our uh, understandings today. That would not I mean, have been maybe true. although the I mean it that, that I mean to the extent that the majority is trying to upset that subtle understanding, it didn't seem to do a particularly persuasive job, right? Like if if that was wrong, that there was no such distinction at common law, I thought the majority would have been able to do a more compelling job of convincing us of that but didn't really seem to do that. All it seemed to convince us of was like, well, there were, you know, a couple cases that, you know, endorsed this proto felony murder thing. Therefore, you know, what everybody else says is wrong. Yeah. I mean, they cite, right. They cite a bunch of, I mean, they have a bunch of other sources in the footnotes, but I guess nobody's going to read the sources cited in the footnotes. Cause again, I don't think anybody's used turn on this. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think that, and, and I mean, there is a subsequent question of like whatever the line was uh, at common law. I mean, that's a different question of like whether something whether something was criminal or not at common law does not really tell you whether something was recognized as a right uh, or not at common law. Right. I think you you mentioned uh, Aaron Tang and he's done some more on this. And I think he has tried to frame this as like you had a right to a pre-quickening abortion, you know, at, at common law. And I don't quite know if that's the right way to think about it, just because the common law had had not drawn a line in a particular place does not necessarily mean it would have been understood as as a right versus just a, a line that had been drawn. I don't know. Yeah. So I, I so anyway, so I'm basically I'm with you, I think, on what I would have found more persuasive. I do kind of wonder in defense of Justice Alito's way of writing this, I wonder if this is almost a kind of a form of due process of law. A sense of like, you know, overruling Roe and Casey is obviously just a huge thing to do. And the court feels some obligation to, tr- to try, even if it, you know, even if in some ways it makes the opinion less persuasive to go through like all the steps as carefully as it can. Uh, so at least kind of people who do read the opinion, yeah. who read the footnotes and read the sources cited in the footnotes, you know, even if we don't agree with all the court's calls, really feel like we, you yeah. know, the courts thought it through would give us an answer, even if, even if we would have come out differently. Yeah, although to the extent that some of the arguments seem particularly unpersuasive, it, it just it makes the whole thing seem more like window dressing. And you're like, well, maybe you could just tell me why you're actually doing this, because it's clearly not because of this. I mean, I think that the paragraph that really got me was uh, the one uh, on page 18 of the opinion. It says, although 
pre-quickening abortion was not itself considered homicide. It does not follow that abortion was permissible uh, at common law. And it's evidence that that isn't the case is a 732 case in which a judge said of the charge of abortion that he had never met with a case so barbarous and unnatural. Okay, so one judge said it was barbarous and unnatural. Uh, and then an indictment from 1602, which did not distinguish between a pre-quickening and post-quickening abortion. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I, I did not find that paragraph very persuasive on its own terms, that those are the two sources that it leaned on to support the proposition. I, I just I found that, you know, quite unpersuasive. So I agree with you with that. It's then followed, though, by the felony murder rule paragraph. And I take it this might have just been an ill-advised paragraph break. Those might really have been meant as one argument. That That may be true, although regardless of the felony murder, it to everybody's and and the majority doesn't really find a way to contest this if you there you know there was an abortion before quickening and nobody died no the adult mother did not die it wasn't a crime it wasn't a crime but hale says it was yeah. still unlawful so it, it was still unlawful in the context of the kind of felony murder situation right. okay we don't we don't have to we don't have to yeah. fight about this but yeah i i i thought that the dissents did a good job. And this is part of the dissent that I think has to have been written by Justice Kagan, right? We should talk a little bit about, you know, which parts we think are written by uh, which of the of the justices. And obviously, you know, because this is a joint dissent, I mean, they all had some hand in it, but I think certain parts of it, you kind of can kind of, you know, get one justice's uh, voice uh, more more than others. Right. Uh, yeah, I think I know. I think I know what you're going to talk about. Go ahead. Yeah. And so in, in the, the, the part that responds to some of the uh, historical arguments on this is sort of part uh, 13, I think really kind of hits the court fairly for you know, the kind of relevant times for which it's uh, looking at history. It says uh, it goes, you know, on one side of 1868, it goes back as far as the 13th century, but then it says it's not clear what relevance such early history should have, uh, and then cites a decision that came out the day before, which we're going to talk about uh, if we can ever get to it uh, on this episode, the Bruin case, the Second Amendment case, which says that historical evidence that long predates ratification may not illuminate the scope of the right, and uh, then also um, how the majority kind of then looks at other stuff in ways that seem kind of inconsistent with what it has told us like the day before yeah. in when you should look, you know, the relevant times for which you could look at look, look at re legal evidence to figure out whether a right exists. Yeah. I thought that was quite effective. So I thought it was unfortunately effective. Yeah. I think like there are good answers to all those points, or at least there are you know correct answers to all those points. Like the talk about it in a second but bruin's use of the you know dismissal of the statute of northampton is very different from the kind of use of like hail that the majority is making here and there's a huge difference between the substantive due process test versus the ways of interpreting and enumerated rights like I, I think there are answers but i think all of them seem all the answers seem kind of like technical and like you're cheating and like you're like let's say i think the majority's reasoning is quite principled and you can agree or disagree with it but it's like you know, almost with with a few exceptions, like almost the kind of model of like what good reasoning for this result would be. And yet the dissent successfully makes it seem unpersuasive and political. And that's like a very effective dissent. If you can if you can take a good opinion and make it seem bad. 
Okay. I don't know where to go with that. Uh, I mean, what I would say is I think it is, you are not going to convince me of that this proposition is not true, that in writing an opinion like this and in writing an opinion like Bruin, um, and in how to choose, you know, how to, which points from the historical record to emphasize, to say are important, to say are unimportant, to say are relevant, to say are not relevant. There may be better and worse arguments at each of those steps. There's a bunch of discretionary choices. And I think that, you know, what we see is those discretionary choices end up being made consistently in a way that leads to certain results. Right. And I, you know, I, I don't think it's just coincidental. That's how the history works out. And it just turns out there's all these technical arguments and it just works out that way. And that's, that's the way it is. I mean, I, I think that there's, uh, in situations like this, I, I'm not convinced that the technical details of all the history and whether this statute is relevant from this time are the things really driving the analysis. I think that the justices decide how the case is going to come out and then they backfill uh, the historical arguments and they lean on people like you to come up with good arguments for why the thing that's things that help them uh, are relevant and the things that don't help them uh, are not relevant. But I think it creates, it is meant to create this illusion of, of kind of determinate scientific certainty that I don't think is actually present. Yeah, I don't think it's supposed to seem determinate or scientific or whatever. But I, I think I think the historical moves are less. I mean, it may be discretionary in the sense that, like the court can do what it wants and nobody can stop them. But I think these decisions are a lot more like defensible on the merits. And that, of course, it's true that the you know the justices are picking up a lot of this through a kind of more complicated process of reflective equilibrium and you know reading other sources and thinking about what other people who they respect think and all that. So I think that's all true. I guess I have a higher opinion of, and also just analysis. having ideological priors, right? I guess. You guess. I, I, you know, you, are you are you are you about to endorse the claim that ideology has nothing to do with how the court resolves a case? No, but I think like Dobbs, I think it has relatively little w- with how the court resolves Dobbs or Bruin. Like, I think it's much more to do with how the court resolves cases where the the legal materials are thinner. Mm. I assume, I'm assuming we're, we're, we're distinguishing like political ideology from legal ideology. I assume, like, I mean, of course, like legal philosophy has a lot to do with how these cases are resolved. But I think the justices' policy views about like concealed carry licenses are actually like pretty marginal compared to their policy views about policing or something affecting a little. I mean, so in cases. Dobbs, I mean, you go through the story decisis analysis, which we haven't talked about that much which is the kind of analysis that really requires a certain amount of kind of policy like yeah judgments uh and is much more mushy much more discretionary uh, much more flexible and i think you know the idea that that is just being dictated by legal methodology i don't think is persuasive um I, I'm not- i don't think that's right i think it's driven a lot by you know, what values the majority versus the dissent think are important and, and how much, um, you know, solicitude they deserve. So, um, and I don't think this is just, well, they're originalists versus not. I mean, Justice so, Alito isn't even an originalist. That, that, I mean, at least he this mocks a, it when it's it doesn't come out the way he wants it to. I, so Justice Alito is an originalist, but uh, he said he has said that, but that doesn't mean that he actually is. I agree. That doesn't mean that he is. Um, I think what you said is a false binary. So my, my point is just like the more. The more the justices talk and think about like a legal argument, I think the more the legal argument takes root in their mind and like the more work it does. 
So in an area where they've been thinking about like the legal arguments for, for 30 years, uh, I think at the, like they're all sufficiently habituated lawyers that the legal arguments end up doing a lot of the work. That doesn't mean the legal arguments have only one right answer or dictate things or whatever that's math or any of that stuff. I just mean their ideological priors end up getting pushed to the side. I guarantee you that justice Leto has not been working through the legal arguments on this for 30 years. Justice Leto has a view of this matter that he's had for 30 years and that he is like writing out a bunch of legal arguments, but it's not like he's needed 30 years to let those arguments gestate for him to finally reach the conclusion that Roe is wrong and should be overruled. Right. I mean, I think some of the start is, I guess I'll just back up and say, I really don't have as much confidence as maybe you do what all the justices think about abortion policy or like what they think the policy outcomes of this decision will be or, or a lot of that stuff. And I think the like stare decisis questions about like, what do you do about like overruling precedent is something that the justices think about all the time. That may be. I mean, I think that um, I, I certainly suspect that uh, this this decision has had kind of a target on its back for decades in the conservative legal movement. And so this uh, sorry, Roe has. And so this decision is the culmination of that, you know, multi-generational yeah. effort. And and I just I, I think that in in some sense it was kind of preordained uh by the amount of, you know, kind of right. hardcore conservative justices that, you know, the Republicans were able to get right. on on the bench. And, um and all I mean and, to add is that, you know, in my experience being in the smoke filled rooms where the, you know, people talk about the target on the back the back of this decision. The talk is about law uh, rather than about babies. Even over, even over even over drinks, people at the Federal Society have an obsessive knowledge of, you know, the scholarship on substance due process and, you know, what Alexander Hamilton said about, you know, in the New York Convention and stuff like that. And that's like even among friends, what people steeped in this yeah, stuff. Yeah, but what about the about. argument? So when you get to the arguments about stare decisis and questions like reliance and there's this, you know, totally different conception of reliance between the majority and the dissent where the majority seems to think like, well, now, you know, uh, abortions is legal and just structure your life differently. And the dissent is like, well, you know, people have like structured their lives, you know, thinking that they have this set of rights and all of a sudden we're pulling the rug out from under them. That's actually really important. I don't know. I, I just, I don't see that as, as kind of like, a sort of technical legal question. Yeah. Uh, I'd see it as something that's really hard to extricate from from values. Yeah. No, um, of course. It's technical. And, it's not technical and it's values based. It's just like a as you know, there's like a legal way to have that conversation about values and a less legal way. And I just mean that that I think the all the people who are in the court are steeped in the legal way. Maybe that doesn't matter. But yeah. I don't I don't know if it matters or not. I mean it, it, we certainly, you know, they are equipped to make arguments uh, in that uh, vocabulary. I think this opinion, these opinions could have been like two sentences and it wouldn't really, nothing would really change. And, you know, I just, I think that we have to kind of go through this whole exercise. But in, what the dissent says is like, look, what happened here is that there's a change in personnel. And, you know, that's why, you know, the court is changing the meaning of the constitution. It's, you know, changing it, changing the law. And like, Okay, that happens sometimes, but I do think that, you know, the dissent makes a decent case. And I think a better case than than Casey itself did. There's a lot of stuff Casey says about story decisis that I don't think is quite persuasive or kind of overwrought. But, you know, there there is, you know, something to this idea that, you know, the court should 
stick to its guns a little bit and not just say anytime, you know, we flip from Democrats to Republicans, now all the kind of Democratic rights go away and the Republican rights take effect. That's not great for the idea of living in a society governed by the rule of law. Yeah, maybe. I mean, so this is the thing that I find the most kind of, I don't know, the thing thing I find sad about this opinion is that I think it's totally appropriate for new justices to vote the way they think is correct. And it's totally appropriate for the president and the Senate to put people on the court who they want to put on the court. But the combination of those two things gives this appearance of impropriety. Like I think the, the dissent is right that like this feels wrong. This kind of doesn't feel rule of law-y. I think it is the right way to do things, but this feels wrong and it looks wrong. And then over time, is that going to sort of degrade the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, even if it's the way things work? I don't think it helps. I mean, I mean, one thing that maybe complicates things is, and I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, there's actually some things we can blame Justice Ginsburg for. I mean, one, you know, obviously this, this result happened because she didn't retire earlier, right? I mean, you, there wouldn't have been a fifth vote to overturn Roe had she not tried to stick it out of the court and died and let Trump, President Trump, replace her with Justice Barrett. But, you know, there's also this idea that, you know, she really set the precedent about how nominees should respond to questions about their judicial philosophy. And, and, and she sort of is often credited with setting the precedent that, you know, basically, basically you give nothing away. Yeah. No hints, no forecasts about how you might rule. And, and so now we have this kind of charade where you, you know, you, you know, you have these hearings, we learn almost nothing from the nominees about what they think uh, about the law, even though, and so we, there's this elaborate kind of signaling going on where, you know, the president thinks he knows what the justice thinks and the senators do uh, as well. But we're not actually having that kind of conversation out loud. We're like, you know, it, it, if Justice Kavanaugh had like said, like, I'm, you know, I think Roe is a bad decision and should be overruled. Would he have been confirmed? I don't know. Susan Collins seems to actually have believed. And, you know, I, I, I think she, you know, she, maybe she really did believe this, that he was not going to vote to overrule Roe. It sounds like it, it's been reported that her, you know, private conversations with him, you know, he certainly didn't promise anything, but but just gave her a certain amount of confidence that he was a story decisis guy. He wasn't he wasn't trying to rock the boat. He was going to stick with it. And I think if he had actually said that, I think that the, you know, the politics would have looked a lot different. And so if it's if it's OK for the president to, you know, for justices to change the law, you know, it's OK for the politicians to select justices on that basis, then, you know, then maybe we should also expect there to be more candor when that's happening. Yeah. So I don't think it's just Ginsburg's fault. I think it's the Senate's fault. I think it's our fault. So I think here's the thing is, first of all, I don't think I think if just if Brett Kavanaugh had said either way, either answer, he probably would not have been confirmed. If if he had said, I promise Roe is safe, you know, Trump would have pulled his nomination. And if he said, I promise I'm going to overrule it, he would have lost Collins and possibly lost, you know, the votes necessary to get him to 50. But the thing is, if if enough senators in the middle cared about candid answers, they could demand them. But the way you demand them is to provide incentives. So you have to to provide incentives to be candid, it has to be the case that answering the question candidly does better than not answering. 
There's be some yeah. somebody who will who will vote for you if you tell them what they don't want to hear, <laughs> but who will not vote for you if you keep their mouth shut. You know, on either side, it would only take like two or three people on both sides to say like, you know, we're in the honest answers caucus, and if you give us honest answers, we'll, <laughs> we'll confirm you. And if you don't, or they could say we just will never confirm you if you don't give us on if you don't answer the questions. And so your only hope of getting our votes is to answer. Yeah, but nobody's willing to do that. Nobody's willing to vote against a nominee they otherwise favor because they care about the process. Yeah, and I guess it does say something. Diagnosis something that's that's kind of wrong with our with our current system. If we have a world where there is no answer, a justice a, a nominee can give about a particular disputed issue like that, that that will not result in them being you know unsatisfactory. Right. That suggests that. I mean, I think we want the court. To solve it seems our problems. like the process depends on someone someone being fooled. Right. Right. I, th- I think at the moment we kind of rely on the Supreme Court to solve problems we can't solve ourselves. I mean, there. Are, People debate which ones are the which ones are the are the ones in this in this category, but that we kind of we get used to the court being like this good, responsible, neutral branch that can that can solve the pathologies of politics. And at some point, your politics gets so pathological that you can't save yourself with the Supreme Court. Well, and at some point, your politics gets so pathological that it distorts the court, right? I yep. mean, this is that's this part is of the thing I've been saying for a few years, which is. I think we have a court that is more partisan than it has been at, you know, any point in recent American history, possibly ever in American history, where judicial ideology kind of perfectly tracks party of appointment. And, you know, I I, I think that that kind of maybe puts a finer point on this criticism about what does it mean for the rule of law to just, you know, if we see cases changing, outcomes changing just because there's a personality change, personnel change? Look, if it's just a personnel change as such, that isn't necessarily problematic. If it's a, if it's about partisan control, if it's like, okay, we, you know, now Republicans have more votes and so the Republican answer wins, I, I really don't think that's good. That perception is good. And I think that that perception that that's what's going on, I, I submit has something to do with the Supreme Court's you know, cratering popularity, which this decision is not going to, does not appear likely to help in the short term. I mean, the, you know, the latest opinion polling I saw uh, earlier today said that, you know, there's, you know, 59 to 41 people oppose the court, what the court did, uh, did here. And there may be different ways you can ask the question that produce different answers. But I, I think it's a not wild speculation to say that this decision will reduce the court's public esteem. But, you know, that, that the more that people just see the court as an extension of politics, the less they're going to like it. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, again, I think some of that's some of that's hard to get away from, though, because as long as the court's doing important stuff to the political system, then people, you know, people rightly want to want to find some way to influence it. And appointments is our way to influence it. Yes. But, you know, I think in an earlier period of time. There was less polarization within the legal community about how to how to address a wide range of questions. Yes, the legal- in the sense that there were just lawyers, and they just kind of like had a certain kind of approach, and there were some people on the extremes in different directions. But there was kind of a, a broader, you know, I would consensus. Yeah, among the legal community. Yeah, I would say the legal community was less democratic. So it just like there was elite opinion. And a legal community shared elite opinion, 
and they successfully used a lot of various social and legal devices to keep uh, the hoi polloi from, you know, getting their hands on elite opinion. Maybe. I guess I don't I don't necessarily think that that's what's changed. I think that, you know, elite opinion still shapes judicial ideology. It's just like which elites. Yeah. Right. Like we now have just it's controlled by kind of more part of polarized uh, elites. Like, I, you know, we don't have the like, you know, Bernie Sanders, like working man's justice on the court right now. So I just said on my arm, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I think that instead what I would describe it as rather than kind of popular, you know, democracy, you know, kind of ascendant at, at the court. Instead, we have kind of different power centers. And, you know, before, you know, you had justices who were part of a broader legal community. Now you have these two competing legal communities that increasingly, you know, don't really speak to each other. And that strikes me as, you know, frightening uh, and troubling because I think part of the reason that we might want to entrust decisions to judges is precisely because they don't approach things the way politicians do and they feel some obligation to decide things, to make decisions in ways that do not just track partisan outcomes, partisan preferences. And I think we have gotten away from that world. I don't think that that is the world we live in anymore. And sure, have we gotten there in a slightly indirect fashion because we've, you know, developed legal theories that kind of turn out to kind of perfectly track party platforms? Yeah. Nonetheless, it's, I don't think, I don't think this is the best timeline to be living in. I mean, this is probably getting into a bunch of things which we're never going to totally agree. I will say I have a less rosy view of a lot of the history, maybe, you know, going back far enough. I see a lot of kind of they're not always based on political party exactly, but they're like the same kind of like when the, you know, when the slavery and anti-slavery justices or when yeah, the yeah, South versus North, the yeah. pro-reconstruction, anti-reconstruction forces, the, you know, yeah, big, big business versus big regulation. Like I see a lot of these cleavages being reproduced in the court. Yeah, you know, ideological cleavages. Yeah, and the, the technology of party polarization has gotten better, you know, for reasons that are maybe relevant, maybe not. But I, I will just note, I think it is now in the Republican Party platform, at least in Texas, that Donald Trump won the election in 2020. And I don't think we see the Supreme Court's decisions perfectly tracking that aspect of the Republican Party platform. And I suspect we never will. Maybe that's cold comfort. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't today, although, you know, we continue to see law moving in ways the court moving in, in in ways further to the right on issues that you know maybe were not yeah predictable i mean i and i think justice thomas did want to hear the cases challenging one of the election challenges right am, am i misremembering that uh there are two things so i think there are some justices including justice thomas who wanted to hear the independent state legislature doctrine question in pennsylvania which would not have even swung pennsylvania yeah. and then justice thomas and justice alito voted to put the Texas original jurisdiction challenge on the docket yeah. and then yeah. and then dismiss it and then dismiss yeah. it on the merits as opposed to refusing leave to file. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. sl- but it's the same outcome. Uh, Dan, it's been an hour and 20 minutes and we haven't talked about any of the other cases. Or should we should we say that has to wait? Should we try to say I, I think we're, okay, look, we're not going to get to Vega, right? Yeah, it's not going to happen. We can talk about Bruin if you want. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if uh, you know, I'm going to run out of out of steam uh, out here okay. eventually but we, we can, can call so it and promise another yeah no 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 we can, can let's do a little brewing i'm just saying for the yeah. listeners i'm not i don't have an hour of brewing in me 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. But so let's try to figure out the right segue to Bruin. So one is, turns out you do not have a constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy, but you do have a constitutional right to terminate adults. Right. That's sort of where we ended up. You can kill people, Uh, but not fetuses. Is that, is that sort of, sort of the the bottom line of the second uh, amendment and, and, and abortion jurisprudence? That's cute, but no. Okay, not not quite fair. What is the what is the the right segue then? I think the right segue is what we see is that the court treats constitutional rights that appear in the Constitution differently than constitutional rights that do not appear in the Constitution. So in Dobbs, we had a huge amount of hand raising. Oh, this is going to bring us back to Dobbs, right? That that maybe that's unfair. That, that maybe, begs maybe, the question, right? Because the whole point the the dissent has, you know, I think let, a part that's quite interesting where it says like, look, we we can't just let the like you know, basically concedes that, you know, the the framers, the ratifiers in 1868 did not think there was a right to an abortion, but says, like, we're not we shouldn't be bound by that. Like, you know, you know we should, uh, you know, we have to kind of figure these things out as we go. Women weren't allowed to participate in the political process at that point. And I think but I think that the best way to understand what the majority is saying is, sorry, the dissent is saying there, it's not like we don't get to just make everything up, but like, you know, these constitutional rights are written at a fairly high level of generality, and we have to kind of apply them. Uh, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. I'm just making the descriptive point that current doctrine does not do what the dissent does, not just an abortion. Current doctrine makes it much harder to find unenumerated, unenumerated rights than enumerated rights. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think that is wrong. Actually, you know, I'm writing about the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which I think contains a bunch of rights that are not mentioned by name. But I think the the way the current court thinks about it is a little more text-focused and a little more worried about judicial creativity in this area and for better or worse right the right to keep bare arms is in there by name and the right to abortion is if it's in there it's not by name fair okay so we have bruin um at issue in bruin is new york's law um governing licensing for concealed carry of a handgun and uh basically the law says that the licensing authority is not, you know, in, in the particular community in which you live, is not required to give you a license. There's certain, you know, criteria. And then if you make kind of the right showing, they can they will give you a license. But, you know, it's not like you're automatically entitled to one if you check certain boxes. Even if they make the showing, they can decide if they give you the license. Yeah. Right. So it's like, I mean, it's like most states, the a license is more like applying it's more like going to the dmv you show up there's a competency test you know maybe they, they certain things can disqualify you but ultimately if you do the things that it says on the website they give you a driver's license and new york is more like if you showed up the dmv and like did all the things and passed the driver's test at the end they just be like eh, too many cars in the road these days we don't want any more you know we don't want any more cars by bike now in fact going to the dmv is sufficiently maddening sometimes it feels to me like that's what's happening but I, that's not supposed to be happening at the dmv and now it's not supposed yeah. to be happening to guns. I mean, I understand it. my understanding was sort of like you have to go there and be like, you know, look, I really need it for self-defense because, you know, like my ex-husband is actively trying to kill me or something. And you're like, OK, you know, but if you're like, I really need it for self-defense because I live in a high crime neighborhood, they're like, oh, that's not quite good enough. So, no. Yeah, I, I've been told it's something like, you know, either you you are basically an off-duty police officer or security guard or a celebrity basically but i don't know like, if that's you, like you me w- would you be issued a permit i don't think I, I don't think i'm the kind of celebrity that counts 
Okay. Uh, I might be uh, I might be a celebrity in Chicago, but in New York, I wouldn't even rate. You don't strike me as a big gun guy. I don't have a gun. I I have fired a gun a few times, but uh, I've read the empirical research and concluded that having a gun in the house is you know on bet uh, on net you know bad for safety, yes. especially if you yes. have children around. Yes, concluded it was bad. I didn't have a gun. Well, some originalists are big gun guys. Uh, Rady Barnett's big gun guy. He sometimes posts pictures of him at the shooting range and showing off his Glock and stuff. So that's one one way to go if you're an originalist, Scott, legal scholar, but not your way. Yeah, not my thing. Not my thing. I used to have a pretty good collection of swords, which was sort of gone the way. But samurai swords, broadsword. I mean, I had a, I had a couple samurai swords, but I was more of a European swords guy. So you know, broadsword, rapier. Uh, dagger that kind of thing and you sold those when you had kids or what uh i know i think i I, even sometime before that at some point you know they were ended up in the closet at my parents house and then when my mom sold the house you know i decided it wasn't worth was this connected to the like D &D stuff or like just totally separate yeah so sort of related interests yeah Yeah. i've been catching up on stranger things while i'm here at my in-laws you watch that show no oh you'd like it it's it's a horror sci-fi series set uh, among kids who play D&D in the 80s. One decade off and that could be my life. Yeah. Anyway, no guns, no swords at this point. Uh, we have plastic lightsabers in my house now. That's about all that seems safe to yeah, have. We've, we, we've got some of those. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's the regime. Sorry, I derailed you a little bit. The court has previously said in Heller, Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. Court said in uh, McDonald that that right is incorporated, so uh, it it binds state governments as well as the federal government. But the court had not really said much more than that, and so we sort of knew that basically flat bans on individual gun ownership were were unconstitutional. But you know, there's a whole host of other questions about you know what about these other laws? What kind of licensing regimes? What kind of restrictions uh, are constitutional? And um, the court had not waded into that for quite some time. And there was a lot of lower court case law, um, but we'd really been waiting for the court to tell us the answer to some of these questions. And so this is a really significant case because the court is kind of stepping in and saying, here is what Second Amendment jurisprudence should look like. Here's how courts should approach these cases. And the way the court does that, I think, is kind of uh, maybe surprising. It's certainly it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. So, so yeah. So as I see it, there are sort of really two big questions in this case. The question presented was kind of obvious what was going to happen and it's important, but it's not the most important thing. And then the other is the methodological question. So the question presented, the way the court thinks of it is basically, do you have a right to carry a gun outside the home? Like most of the time or, you know, upon a showing of something, or is that kind of like fundamentally you should be able to carry a gun around and this has to find a way to help you do it if you're a law abiding citizen. And they answer yes. And then the, that, that leads to the conclusion that these discretionary regimes, you know, for most people don't let them carry a gun outside the home. That's a problem. I think that's like everybody expected that was going to happen. The court had this case on its docket several years ago. And then, you know, the state and legislature managed to, to moot it out and avoid it. But everybody kind of expected that was going to happen. What I think people did not necessarily expect was that then uh, on the way to that path, Justice Thomas sort of announces the new test for how uh, the Second Amendment works and maybe how all of the Bill of Rights works, unilaterally abrogating virtually every circuit decision to have dealt with the Second Amendment since Heller and McDonald, because there's a test that almost all of them had used that the court 
you know, targets and explicitly declares is wrong. So that's going to be a huge amount of new litigation and obviously a slightly newly constituted bench uh, for, for every gun restriction. Yeah. And so um, kind of, can you walk us through how the lower courts seem to understand the test to work and then the way it's going to work in the Supreme Court? Yeah. So the, the lower courts basically said, you know, it's like a two-step test. You first do some kind of a historical inquiry to see, you know, is this within the historical tradition of the right to keep and bear arms? And then you do some kind of means and scrutiny. And the lower courts disagreed about, you know, strict scrutiny versus intermediate scrutiny or other kinds of scrutiny. But like, you know, does the, 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 we see this in a lot of other uh, other individual rights cases? I assume you remember so, yeah. some version of like, does what's the government's interest? You know, how related is this restriction to the interest? Uh, that was the kind of the widespread lower court approach, which is the way just, you know we do other constitutional rights. Well, for the maybe. most part, yeah. Then Justice Thomas, for the majority, says, despite the popularity of this two-step approach, it is one step too many, and basically says you just do the historical approach. Uh, now, the historical approach turns out to have several kind of non-historical aspects baked into it. it you know, you don't have to literally look for a gun restriction that was known to history. You can, you can draw analogies. You can you know do some other things, but but fundamentally, you don't get to a second step where you say, yes, this is contrary to the historical right, but it's okay because it's a good idea. And you just like, you never get to that second step. And interestingly, Justice Thomas goes on to say again for the court that goes on to claim this is how we do other rights too. So he claims, you know, in the First Amendment case, we don't do this anymore. We take a basically a historical categorical approach, citing some of the, one of the court's more recent First Amendment cases that had really changed the doctrine a lot to adopt that kind of historic approach. He cites the Confrontation Clause sort of uh, sets the establishment clause. So it makes a kind of general declaration of historically bounded rules overbalancing. Maybe that's dicta, so maybe it doesn't really matter, but I think it was quite striking. Yeah, he said Stevens is that yeah. for the first amount point. Yeah, the thing that's funny about that uh, is Stevens, that's the case from Beck. When I clerked, that's the like, uh, basically constitutionality of a law that was purported to you know criminalize like these like animal cruelty videos. Um, yeah. And the court said, look, you know, basically there's set categories of things that, you know, historically, you know, weren't protected. And if it doesn't fit into one of those, like, cl- you know, list of closed categories, then you can't prohibit it. Right. Yeah. But then that same term in an opinion also by chief justice Roberts, that one is chief justice Roberts, the court then applied some kind of, some kind of level of heightened scrutiny to a different law, basically the the material support uh, law that basically criminalized doing all sorts of stuff, you know, to help, you know, organizations that were on the list of designated terrorist organizations, stuff that looked like speech, like filing an amicus brief, things like that. Uh, and the court it wasn't super clear on what level of scrutiny it was applying, possibly strict scrutiny, and said, you know, but there's a really strong government interest here in like preventing terrorism. And so that's okay. So right. the court still does that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think this is a, a, a you know a wildly optimistic overclaiming by Justice Thomas. I, I do think as I as you read his kind of more nuanced explanation of what the historical approach is supposed to look like, I think I take it that kind of scrutiny is fine so long as what it's trying to do is like pick up on the historical test. So if the idea, and this is you know, nobody spelled this out in in uh, humanitarian law project versus holder, but if the idea is something like 
oh, well, there's always been an understood exception to certain kinds of advocacy when it gets too close to sedition and treason. And we're just like, we're kind of using the strict scrutiny framework to ask, is this really close to sedition and treason because it similarly burdens the government's interest in national security, you know, et cetera. Like if, if that's, that's kind of how you'd have to rerun it under this version. And it may well have gotten to the same place. I'm not sure. But, but yeah, it's right that, that strict, the death of strict scrutiny seems to be like a little bit premature uh, yeah. in this, in this opinion. Yeah. But it, it does suggest that isn't the way we're going to think about second amendment cases. That basically, and, and can you just, uh, this get, got a little complicated for me. Can you just walk me through the more specifics of the historical test? So first of all, we look for a prohibition that kind of looked like the prohibition, a historical prohibition that kind of looked like the one at issue in the current case. Is that is that step one? Is there, I know that we get rid of the second step, but is this like step 1A? Yeah. So we look, I mean, so we look to the, to the relevant sort of, right. The, I mean, it's, it's sort of like the first amendment. You'd look to the relevant historical category of regulation that we know is okay. And then you ask whether this is sufficiently analogous to that, uh, which of course does require, so he's open that that requires some value judgments about sort of what it is that, you know, what it is that was behind the historical exception or like what was the purpose of it or how did it work? Um, so for instance, there's some discussion in the in the case and in other scholarship about like sensitive places. And this is also mentioned in Heller. There's some understanding that there were like you couldn't take a couldn't take your pistol into the jury room or whatever at the founding because that was a sensitive place. And so some kind of equivalent rule is still true today. And so there will be litigation, uh, which the court mostly doesn't resolve about. Well, what you know, what's an analogously sensitive place? I, I like how they were you know that they were very quick to make clear. That like you know the Supreme Court is still allowed to like bar people from having guns at the court, right? Right. We're we're still safe here behind in our marble palace, <laughs> surrounded by right. our unscalable fence. Just you <laughs> folks uh, who who are not. Well, I, I take it they're not going to mess with schools, probably even like you know campuses, etc. Uh, they do say you know you can't declare the entire island of Manhattan a sensitive place on the grounds that it's like you know crowded and guns are scary. I think. I think the actual case that, that at least the Second Circuit left to confront is they'll surely ban carrying guns like on public transportation in New York, and then that will have a huge impact on the ability to, to bear arms in Manhattan. And then I expect the courts left to wrestle with that, uh, whether that's sufficiently analogous or not. But that's that's the kind of inquiry that the courts uh, calling for. Yeah. Okay. And here there is a lot of history. I found this decision. The the kind of you know, methodological question stuff is interesting. The actual application of the history gets, I I, I found quite tedious sure. and there's a lot of back and forth about, you know, we, we, we start with some really, you know, stuff hundreds of years before we, you know, go all the way through into the 20th century. The court tells us a bunch of that stuff shouldn't be relevant. Some of it court says is relevant. Um, it seems like the stuff that the court thinks isn't relevant is the stuff that would support the dissent uh, in saying this isn't protected. The stuff that is relevant, they say, uh, supports their outcome. But it's a lot. Uh, it's a lot. And, you know, it, it struck me as kind of some of the things that I like the least about originalism, which is just, you know, you, you end up having to do asking judges to do, you know, this kind of law office history that I think that you know, lawyers are not necessarily yeah. that well equipped to do. This is something that the dissent, a point the dissent makes is that, look, the Supreme Court 
like, you know, has a lot of staff, has a really good library, and maybe like we can write these hundred page opinions that like canvas like a millennia of history going back to like Magna Carta. But like, yeah. you know, what is like some random district court judge supposed to do? That's a good that's a good question, right? So it is a good question. I happen to particularly like it because the majority gives us an answer, a law review article, actually not even a law review article, a history journal article published in a peer-reviewed history journal by me and Steve Sachs, basically defending uh, the enterprise of law office history on the grounds that it's law rather than history. And so the the majority drops a footnote to uh, footnote six uh, to say that the job of judges is not to resolve historical questions in the abstract. It is to resolve legal questions presented in particular cases or controversies. And that legal inquiry is a refined subset of the broader historical inquiry. It relies on various evidentiary principles and default rules to resolve uncertainties, citing you know, Bowdoin Sachs, Originals in the Law of the Past. So I guess I think uh, that that's right. Um, and well, that, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, you know, if you if you'd asked me to list my articles in order of likelihood to be cited in the Supreme Court opinion, I would have put originals in the law of the past, you know, like towards the bottom. Like this is making like a methodological point to historians as part of a kind of broader conversation about how historians should think about originalism. So I'm I'm pleased the court found it, and it's especially funny because it's the first time I've ever been cited in a majority opinion by the court. Uh, otherwise it's always been, you know, in dissent or concurrence. But I do think that there's a lot like this is what, this is where like the rules of evidence and the rules of, you know, all sorts of other, I mean, the rules of party presentation, all those things do a lot of work. And this happens to be a a good example of it, I think, because it's a place where there's been a huge amount of scholarship in these questions. So the court is not in this opinion, really like itself, you know, being the first ones to figure out like the truth about the statute of Northampton or like the Massachusetts surety laws. Like it has a set of competing scholarly accounts on both sides and it, you know, has to decide what it thinks is more persuasive, just like district courts do with expert witnesses all the time. Yeah. Although they're, you know, they're kind of resolving factual claims, right. That are being presented through testimony and so forth. I mean, our, our judges, you know, Yes, these are in some sense like they're questions involving law, but they're still like they are also just factual questions. Like what was actually going on on the ground in like 1300s, right? Like, you know. I, yeah. Oh, this is, I mean, this is part of what the opinion is doing. I mean, again, the, maybe it seems unpersuasive is, is it's trying to explain that like probably what happened on the ground in the 1300s actually isn't relevant because the Second Amendment is written in uh, the 1700s. So it matters is what people thought in the 1700s about whatever may or may not have been going on, on the ground in the 1300s. And weirdly, that's actually an easier question to answer, right? Because we like are more used to the set of sources, the legal sources. Yeah, that although the court is engaging with some of those questions about like, what did this law mean? Oh, it just meant that you couldn't like wear armor, you know, stuff like that. Right. Right. So, Which are, you know. Yeah. It, it engages with them, but I think it's more clear in a way that maybe I wish Dobbs had been like, sometimes it's engaged in those questions even though they aren't that important or that like ultimately you know in a way ultimately what comes down it comes down to like i mean to oversimplify in england there are various times that they disarmed people and like didn't respect the right to keep and bear arms and the question is were the framers for that or against it did they think that was part of the second amendment tradition they were enshrining or was that part of the reason they weren't they were writing the second amendment was to avoid that and so we need to know kind of their general valence on some of those instances you know, the same way we did this, we've gotten used to doing this in the First Amendment context, right? Like, how did they feel about the Zenger trial or whatever? And this is kind of a similar, a similar question. 
I think there are going to be a lot of hard questions of this history. Um, I think as it happens, this case is not one of the harder questions. Uh, but but I do think the court of appeals, because of appeals are going to have their work cut out for them. Uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of following stuff about, you know, what kinds of weapons, right? Um, you know, uh, the court, you know, the court says here and said in Heller that like, you know, it, it's not Second Amendment does not just apply to like muskets and stuff. It applies to weapons that are in common common use. But like, what exactly does that mean? Does that, yeah. you know, I mean, does that does that mean it protects all assault rifles? Could there be regulation of assault rifles? Could there be yeah. you know, prohibitions on bump stocks, you know, large ammunition containers, you sure. know, all sorts of things? Sure. Uh, I think the body armor question is more important to people. Like, you know, there are currently lots of restrictions on your ability to use armor to keep the police from killing you. And, you know, that may be hard to, to justify on some of the historical basis. There's okay. also the other big set of cases are sort of who can have who can have a gun questions. Everybody sort of assumes that felon disenfranchisement is okay, although as to nonviolent felons, that's not totally obvious. But then also, you know, misdemeanors, aliens, people who are not felons but are currently out on bail, people between the ages of 18 to 21. There's like a whole set of of questions about that 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 are gonna have, I think, also complicated sort of history, historical analogy questions. Yeah. And I guess, you know, this is this approach, though, seems to be, you know, likely to, you know, push the lower courts more in the direction of invalidating restrictions, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly compared to where they were, which is that almost they generally were not invalidating any restrictions. Yeah, I think there are going to be, you know, yeah. there are going to be some restrictions that that don't survive. Yeah. And, you know, you have uh, dissent by Justice Breyer. You know who leads off by by talking about you know some of the facts on the ground about you know the problem of mass shootings, citing examples of a bunch of the recent mass shootings, you know which I, I think is relevant. I mean, I think it doesn't answer the question, but I think that it's at least something. Why, that I why is that like. relevant? Why is it relevant? Because I think that these cases involve, um, as I as I've said, there there's a there's a significant range of discretionary choices they're not uh that you know it, uh, in which the law maybe suggests a direction but doesn't clearly dictate the answer and certainly i don't think the i don't think the constitution clearly answers the question of what analytical framework courts should take in figuring out how to assess you know alleged violations of that right like does it clearly say you can't do strict scrutiny I don't know. It seems like a legitimate, you know, kind of thinking, you know, to Richard Fallon, you know, like a legitimate judicial attempt to kind of implement the, you know, kind of the the fairly simple rules, you know, that don't give you a lot of content uh, from the Constitution, kind of implement them into judicially workable standards. Uh, should that be the rule or should we, you know, should we just have these more kind of like ironclad uh, commands? I mean, there's just a lot of discretionary choices. And I do think that like, you know, I, thinking about I, I'm like, is one of these going to cause a lot more people to die? I don't know. Maybe that should be in the background. Right. I, I'm really asking the Justice Alito question. Like, is, do you think that any of the gun control rules in question have a big effect on the number of people who die? Like, do you think that a lot more people are going to die in New York next year rather than this year? Or that like, you know, if if do I, I think know. that if guns become suddenly more widely available in New York, are more people going to die? Yes, I do. 
I do think there's lots that you've already alluded to, right? Like, is that even just lawful gun ownership in your own home increases your risk of death because it increases the risk of suicide and increases the risk of accidental death. Right. Although, so right. Although this is part of the question is like, so we already have Heller and McDonald already established the right to have the gun in your home. So the question is, is this decision going to cause a lot of people who currently don't have guns in their home at all to have guns in their home? So it's not just about the home though. I I think that, I think that the point is, which I think is, I, I certainly believe, and I'm sure that, some of the gun people will come out and, you know, claim I'm wrong, but uh, is that the increasing the number of guns in circulation, increasing the availability and increasing the number uh, of guns that are, you know, held in public spaces is going to increase death. Right. Yes. I don't, I I'm asking more I, like the the question, like, do we think the current laws we have really have that much effect on gun circulation? Like, do we enforce them in a way that like do we set, do we believe in deterrence do we think that having laws against having guns causes people not to have guns do we think that we currently have rational firearms laws i mean i don't accept the argument that laws prohibiting uh gun ownership in some circumstances have no effect in the world right there's a bunch of other countries that have stricter laws about guns and they have fewer guns and they have fewer gun deaths right like it cannot be the case that like law has no role here. I mean, I would say it could be the case. It could be the case that uh, our laws are so poorly enforced uh, and so inconsistently enforced and our, you know, amount of criminal behavior and violent behavior is caused by our lack of a social safety net and our lead in the water and a bunch of other, and our history of systemic racism that like the law is just like, doing very little work in this in this area i don't know if that's true i mean it, it may be but if if the law was not making any difference in who possessed guns then one might think there weren't the stakes of why would people care as much about getting these laws overturned well uh, because we're I think, all in thrall to symbolic po- politics maybe uh, or maybe that there actually are stakes that this is going to cause some people who wouldn't have possessed guns otherwise to possess them i think that yeah. you know I, I i think that is that is an easier Actually, claim for me yeah. to defend than the claim that this will have no effect on the right. real world at all. And if it has that right. effect, I think it's also, you know, quite likely, I can't prove it uh, in this podcast, that it will increase death. Yeah. So which, which, my yeah, impression, some, sometimes constitutional rights have caused, but I just, I think that like. Right. I, know, I was more, I was, so my impression is that the effect on suicides of gun laws are a lot stronger than the effects on homicides that like, you know, and I think we all, you know, most gun, de- a majority of gun deaths are suicides. And so part where Justice, Justice Breyer also relies on those statistics. And I think those are probably more likely to be where the needle gets moved. But I'm also sort of interested in this because there's like a whole, you know, a whole lot of social scientists who try to figure out like what gun laws work and what effects they have and, you know, that kind of thing. And so if the court's not going to play amateur historian, it seems like its alternative is to play amateur sociologist. And I don't know what which one the court's better or worse at, to be honest. Well, I mean, there's a third option, which is the court should like be cautious and maybe be somewhat more deferential to legislatures in doing the kind of like sociologist work. Like, right. but but I mean, maybe. Although I, I query whether our legislatures are any better at playing sociologist. Yeah, although we but like we got we we got this like lengthy pie in to you know how we should return these issues to the people's representatives in. Dobbs and then the court, you know, really doesn't want to do that. Um, 
right uh but with respect to the second amendment but isn't there a difference between a moral question and an empirical question like you know i take it nobody disagrees that that dying is bad that the people being killed by guns are people and then we have this question about sort of like you know the history and the empirics whereas in dobbs it's more like fundamental philosophical questions uh maybe i mean i think there's also you know a lot of uh empirical questions there like there's there's huge debates about like you know do we need these restrictions you know particular restrictions on hospital admitting privileges to like protect women or are they just you know pretexts and things like that um uh, empirical questions about like do you need to prohibit abortion because women regret it or not like there's all sorts of like empirical questions baked in so i don't think it's just a moral question and i don't know typically i don't know typically you know even with respect to those empirical questions we tend to think that legislatures are supposed to be better at those even if we you know whatever we think about them in practice those are the kinds of things that legislatures and not courts are supposed to be doing right figuring out like what policies are good policies and effective or not maybe although at least at least with enumerated rights traditionally we think that there's got to be some backstop where the court is checking you know whatever it is so if if we thought the first amendment could be limited in cases where lots of people are going to die because you shouted fire at a crowded theater i think we would expect the court to figure out whether or not you know are there in fact a lot of burning theaters like (laughs) what in fact happens if somebody shots fire in them We, we wouldn't expect the court to just like take those assertions of face value uh yes but we might you know we might say sometimes the court should be more cautious be less cautious uh and in a situation you know where the stakes are as high as they are and where you know the country is experiencing the volume of you know gun violence that we're experiencing and including at this you know very present moment in time um you know I, I think i wouldn't mind the court to at least acknowledge what's going on you know justice leto has this kind of annoyed uh concurrence where he you know criticizes the dissent for emphasizing those facts but i don't know i think it's i think it's totally fine for um the dissent to say look the thing that you're doing um is we think it's legally wrong and by the way uh, here's the really important, you know, policy question at stake, um, and the the real harm that this decision yeah. that we think is wrong is going to create in the world. And I think I mean, so I just they should. Have I read Justice that. Alito's as asking the same kind of question I was asking, which is like, you know, it, how confident are we are we that we can are, that we can draw a connection between the things that dissent thinks are bad and the actual legal questions? Like, if during the Red Scare. The court had spent more time dwelling on like why Stalin was bad, or then explaining why we should punish communists or like not let them be school teachers or whatever. I, I would have found that kind of beside the point. Like it's true that Stalin is really really bad, and I, you you can draw a line from like it's possible that if we don't lock up communists, it's possible that we'll get more Stalins. But you know, I still don't know that would have been the most helpful framing, and I worry that. I mean, that's it's a that's little a, bit of a different, you know, that's more of a stretch than like we're saying like lots of people are using guns to kill people like right now and then this law is like can more people have guns or not it's a little bit of a closer line between like is stalin bad and you know yeah should a a little although you know doesn't what about the point the buffalo point like that just spares this list of mass shootings one of which takes place in the state with the law that he says is necessary now i mean maybe the point is just there would be more mass shootings in new york without it but yeah i mean how do we i mean you don't you don't eyeball the anecdotes and think the like the fact oh, that a law right. is not prohibit is not like preventing all of the bad things 
uh, that it seeks to prohibit does not mean it's an ineffective law. Right. But when you then, when you're the one listening to Parade of Horribles and you put that in your list, it suggests that you weren't engaging in a great amount of attention to like your examples either. Uh, or maybe, or maybe he just thinks what I thought. I mean, you know, presumably he saw a draft of that response to the majority and could have taken it out if he wanted to and didn't choose not to. Well, that's because I think he's making the mood affiliation point more than the empirical point. We're all terrified by guns and gun crime in this country, and I am too. And then it sort of it feels like this is hurting rather than helping, even if probably it doesn't make a difference. I, I don't. I don't. I don't believe that claim. Probably doesn't make a difference. It I just mean, even if it probably doesn't make a difference. Even if it doesn't make a difference, it still feels it still feels bad. We're kind of our feelings are driving yeah, this. I'm not going. I'm not going to uh, spot you that it doesn't make a difference. Okay. I mean, like, right. Whether it makes a difference or not is an empirical claim that I think we have different priors on and that the opinions provide very little evidence about either way, right? The majority doesn't care about it. Justice Breyer doesn't do a lot of work on it. Yes. Although I, I think the burden is on you to prove that a law that makes guns more widely available has zero real world impact, right? Obviously that makes some, that has changes something I mean, in the world. You know, so we have a law that makes it harder to take your guns out, you know, take your guns from home out in public. I do think there will be a non-zero number of people, at least two, at least the petitioners, probably more than two, probably, uh, who will now be able to carry their guns more places than they were before. Um, I do think that's right. But I still suspect that when, I assume in, I assume in 10 years, there'll be a bunch of econometric studies, you know, doing natural experiments on differences and differences of whether or not violence increased more in the six states that are affected by this decision than the 43 states that weren't. And my guess is that it's not going to be anything big enough for them to pick up. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe it'll be big enough that we pick it up and we'll learn a lot about uh, public safety and maybe that'll cause the Supreme Court decision to be overturned to 10 years by the 41 justice court or whatever. Um, but I don't have a lot of confidence in that. Yeah. I mean, you know, wh and whether it's able to be picked up by empiricists using our, you know, somewhat limited ability to engage in causal inference doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't have an impact. It just could mean no, that right. it's hard to detect. Right. Right. I just, yeah, I see a world where getting from, from law to actually making things happen is often very hard. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, so maybe, maybe this has less of an effect. I mean, it certainly has less of an immediate effect than Dobbs. You know, I feel like we should, should have lingered on that a little bit more uh, about, you know, the really, because we got kind of tangled up with the like metaphysical timing question about mandates, but like, you know, this Bruin is going to yeah. change the law in like six States. Um, and you know, some people, it was harder to get a license. Now it's going to be easier to get a license. Dobbs is, is going to change the law in a lot of States and it's going to green light other kinds of laws that, you know, some States haven't yet passed. It's, you know, so presumably I think we're going to end up in a situation where abortion is illegal, you know, very quickly. And, yeah. Half the country, more than no, half the country. The, uh, by land area or by population? Um, just maybe more like number of states. I think 26 states had signed on to a brief saying overturn row. Um, yeah, but that's just that's just that they have Republican attorney generals. Yeah, they don't yeah, all have Republican legislatures. The sort of supermajority. Um, yeah. That they but, need. But no, I think it's still a lot. I mean, there are, there are abortion clinics shutting down. And if you look at the, I mean, I think 
they already shut down in, in your home state of Missouri. If you look at the map, it looks like Illinois yeah. will be yeah, the, the only, only the only one. In, I think the only one in Missouri uh, is one that I drive by uh, on my way to work uh, every day. And you know, I presume by the time I get home, uh, it will you know, I'm sure it'll still be running and just providing other services, but it will no longer be, yeah, uh, an abortion clinic. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. I mean, it's huge. Um, it's huge. Yeah, it's gonna. I mean, it's gonna really. You know. Um, it's going to really affect a lot of people's lives, um, in, in very profound ways. And, in you know, uh, you know, obviously people have different moral priors about this, but I mean, it's certainly, you know, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of women who are going to be, um, whose lives are going to be profoundly changed, uh, and, you know, for the worse, uh, as a result. And, you know, I think that that's a, you know, that's a cost. And, you know, I think it's just one that, you know, shouldn't be ignored and needs to be, uh, needs to be acknowledged. Um, you know, and if you're a member of the majority, you know, you either don't care about that, you don't believe it, or you just think it's irrelevant. Um, and you know, those are all different paths you can go down. Right. I mean, I think there also, of course there are, you know, we haven't talked much about like the fetal person that argument or, or I guess it's a policy version, but there are also pro-life people who would say, you know, it's true, but also there are a lot of people who are going to be, who are going to get to live who wouldn't have lived otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not the um, way I have to think about it, but yeah, this does, by the way, you know, one, one other thing I know we're, you know, maybe there's more to say about Bruin, but I've, uh, I think we should just say a little bit, uh, wrap up this conversation on Dobbs and then, you know, maybe we'll get to Vegas some other day, which I was going to say, um, this, this kind of like ends the whole trade about the Texas heartbeat law, um, mm-hmm. SB eight with the elaborate, you know, jury rigged system in which you know private citizens could enforce the law but there was no one to sue uh and i I think i've said this all along that the whole thing i thought was actually you know supposed to be such a genius thing i i just thought it was dumb because if the court really wanted to uphold roe it would have found a way to strike down that law and if the court didn't it wouldn't and the court didn't strike that law down and it didn't uphold roe so like it, it it just really didn't matter like I, I just I don't think that there was a I don't think that there was a realistic universe in which like there were a period of years in which the court was like, no, we're going to really stick with Roe, but also we're utterly powerless to do anything about this Texas law. Yeah, I right? mean, but it did. It made a difference on the ground in the meantime. Right. There are a lot of women whose lives were affected by the. Yeah. But, but like for six like, months lost. A f- yeah. A few months. Yeah. But like, I don't think yeah. I didn't think that that was that those like, you know, figuring out a way to kind of like ban abortion for a few months before the court like finishes writing the opinion and Dobbs. Like I, I didn't really think that that was, that was the goal of this kind of like allegedly genius strategy. I thought like the, I the think point that was, was like, Oh, we found some loophole. Well, I don't know. I mean, was, was the goal really just to, you know, have the timing work out perfectly such that, you know, it would, you know, give you this, you know, extra cushion of time you know, while Dobbs is already in the works, I, I sort of that, thought the goal was, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, there'll be a few years away from doing this. Right. Um, maybe it, I mean, it's true. Maybe the victory in Dobbs happened faster than expected, but I think what I read was that, you know, the previous experience in Texas and other States was that every abortion law immediately gets enjoined. And then like, you know, immediately gets enjoined and never goes into effect. And the goal is to figure out a way to write a law that wouldn't get immediately enjoined. You could actually like have an effect while you're fighting that in court. I just, I just think and, it would have gotten immediately enjoined 
in the end with a court that actually believed in adhering to Roe. Well, we'll never know. Like, I think, you know, if this was the court, you know, 10 years ago, it would have gotten immediately joined and, you know, you know, and that would have been the end of it. Right. I mean, like, well, I'd say just, we'll never know if, if we imagine a world where Justice Kavanaugh didn't want to overrule Roe, but instead wanted to go with the chief's opinion in Dobbs. Do we imagine that also means he would have voted differently in Holman's health? I mean, that's, that's not frivolous. That's possible, but it's also possible he would have. Well, I guess it, it depends on, you know, what we really think. If we think that, um, is there, you know, some set of justices who, you know, didn't want to take the political heat for overruling Roe, but like wanted to accomplish that result in practice, would they have done that? Yeah, probably. But I think if there were, you know, like certainly I, I can't believe Justice Kennedy would have like, you know, let that law stand. He would have seen it for what it was, which is a, a cynical attempt to like, you know, find a way around, you know, the court's constitutional guarantees that were laid out by the Supreme Court. And he would have said, I like, mean, just, no way. Justice Kennedy never let legal technicalities get in his way if he didn't want to. That's true. Yeah, I, I don't think it's just a legal technicality, though. I think that like there's legal techni- technicalities and then there's kind of like absurd uh, attempts to develop loopholes. And I think that law is, you know, it's a mix of the technicalities and common sense. I think any uh, any good judge has to have some combination of those two things. And to the extent that, you know, the the claim of the conservative legal movement is that it should be 100% of the technicalities and none of the common sense, I think that's both descriptively wrong and uh, dangerous. Um, and, you know, again, as I've said, I just, there's just no way a law that targeted some other constitutional right would have been tolerated. There's just no way. There's no way. And uh, it was tolerated in this case because the court was already prepared to walk away from Roe, which it did. I think we had this fight about how to think about the politics of SB8 before, and I'm just going to rest on my prior answers. Yeah, I'm going to rest on you being wrong. Okay, so... Uh, the curse so of stuff. the pre-announced cases strikes again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, it turns out it, it is... It, I just was... I was thinking uh, it's now like 11, uh, 21 here. So I'm probably a little punchy, but you know, it is an unfortunate coincidence that, um, that history uh, ends up, you know, codifying the Republican party platform. It's too bad, but maybe it won't always be true, but we'll have to see. Not all the Republican party platform, Dan. Well, uh, not the, what what not big lie yeah but then it 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 you've got all this independent state legislator stuff which is not yeah all the way there but i think is not is like a quarter of the way there mm, i think this is the mood affiliation problem again i think i mean I think when the court decides the independent state legislature doctrine i'm sure this is what will happen is it will you know people's correct emotional hatred towards the big lie will cause them to assume the opinion is part of that as well when it's really I, I, kind of i, I think the, the whole thing here's you know, obviously this is not the case that we have to talk about today but i do think that they are the big lie is i think cannot be wholly separated from the republican uh, assault on 
voting rights and the Republican attempt to sow so doubt on the integrity of elections over the last couple decades to a degree that is not clearly not justified empirically. I think those two things, the the second thing, the the larger strategy made the big lie, you know, more plausible. Uh, I don't think they can be disentangled. And I think the independent state legislature doctrine is actually part of that larger program. But we'll, I'm sure they'll give us that case and I'm sure we'll, they'll, they'll do stuff that I don't like. And then we'll talk about it, which is kind of basically like what the show is, right? Uh, it's like they do, they do stuff I don't love. Yeah. And like I say, it's bad. And you're like, well, actually they're super, super principled and everybody's great. Well, Court, if you're listening, try to do something Dan likes at some point so we can break up the uh, rhythm of our show. Yeah. Not super likely other than in like little trivial crimpro things. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, it's been a long one. Why don't you close this out? All right. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, please remember to uh, rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. We've gotten some uh, reviews recently, which I really appreciate. Um, please write us, call in. Uh, if you you know write us with some praise or good feedback, we might repeat it on the show. If you write us with nasty feedback or criticize us, we'll probably just describe it and then explain why we don't care about your views after all. But we really appreciate it either way. And thanks to the Constitutional Law Institute for sponsoring all our endeavors. And if we don't record another episode for a long time, it will be because I got stuck in this car in uh, outside my in-laws' house. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen, Dan. <laughs>